Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Colonel Buck Abrichter, an Air Force faculty member here at the U.S. Army War College in the Department of Command, Leadership, and Management, and part of the War Room editorial team. This year's Army Strategy Conference, hosted by the Strategic Studies Institute, is centered on the theme of Strategic Leadership 2030 and looks at the current and future requirements for senior and strategic leadership. And we here at the War Room are pleased to partner with SSI and other parts of the War College to bring you several podcasts related to this year's conference. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. Sarah Sewell in the studio with me to discuss her perspectives on senior and strategic leadership. Dr. Sewell is presently the Spire Family Foundation Distinguished Scholar and Professor at the Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She has a long history of service in both academia as well as government, most recently serving as the Under Secretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights from 2014 to 2017. During that time, she was responsible for counterterrorism, refugees and migration, international justice and law enforcement programs, human rights, human trafficking, and conflict prevention. Her present academic work focuses on the changing nature of conflict, global norms, and global governance. Dr. Sewell, welcome to Carlisle, and welcome to the War Room. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to have you. So let's start right off with uh, some of your thoughts on, on strategic leadership. Uh, can you please tell us uh, about any of the strategic leaders, military or civilian, who you admire most and why? Well, one of the interesting aspects of a, of a question about strategic leadership is that we tend to think about strategic leaders as people who were successful, right? We don't reify those who were strategic in the sense that they had goals and they applied the means to their goals, um, but they lost. But similarly to me, it's the content of their goals that matters a lot. And so strategic leadership per se is sort of neutral. It's a, it, it, it doesn't speak to the character of the goal. And so if you think about someone like Hitler as a strategic leader, he was both unsuccessful and he had really bad goals, right? So, so I want, you know, my, the people that I admire were strategic leaders that had goals that I supported and who were successful. But that doesn't mean they're the only ones. They're the ones about whom uh, all the books are written. So, you know, people, um, there, there are many. The ones that stand out in my mind are those that have crossed what I think the, the, the War College is most concerned with, which is military leaders who rise to the challenge of of meeting and defeating an adversary, but who have also shown their ability to lead strategically in a more affirmative sense in, in terms of promoting and achieving change. So there are an extraordinary number of people that have actually crossed both of those worlds. They are people that we all know, but we don't necessarily think about them in the non-military sense as well. So Washington, Lincoln, FDR, Right? Those to me are the archetypes because they both built and they defended. Um, but there are other forms of strategic leadership that I really admire as well. And in many ways, I think my heart is with those that have led movements for social change who have had to be uh, savvy leaders with fewer tools. So people like King or Gandhi, who 
who really were working with very little and managed to lead movements that made change happen broadly and in some cases internationally. And so um, those are among the leaders that I admire. I was going to ask you about, in your experiences with senior leaders, uh, you know, we're thinking along the lines of, of military colonels and, and the equivalents you've dealt with along the way, what you think separates the best ones from the rest, but I think you've kind of answered that already. Is there anything you'd like to add to the characteristics of those that were most successful? You know, I did um, I did a, f- a field survey for General McChrystal and, and General Petraeus in Afghanistan and traveled around throughout the country over a significant period of time talking to um, almost every level of command. And I was really struck by the, the leaders that I met who saw problems, saw complex complexity in the problems that they were trying to address. Mm-hmm. And those were the ones that seemed to be having the most success, at least in the counterinsurgency context in which we were evaluating uh, operations. And they seemed to be... Um, they seem to be a bit unusual. They seem to be very much self-studiers. They seem to be very well-read, and they seem to always have. They had, they had references and frameworks and and characters and anecdotes that came very much from outside of the military mm-hmm. experience, and that always struck me as perhaps being one of the unusual ingredients of of having a 360 perspective on whatever challenge that you're facing. You have to think a little bit outside of the box. You have to read a little bit outside of your comfort zone. You have to you have to be open to influences from from the unusual suspects and places. Mm-hmm. That breadth of experience we're always searching for amongst our senior leaders, but constantly chasing and how we accomplish that in the assignment process and, and experiences we, we get them. Uh, can you get give us an idea of an experience with a strategic issue that you found difficult to address? Well, when I have come into government service, I have tended to do so to accomplish a particular objective. Um, one of the, the more salient pieces of advice that I got as a young person thinking about a career in public policy was that there are people that want to do things and there are people that want to be things. And I, I am of the former category. So when I first came to the Pentagon in 93, I came to help the military, and in particular the Army, sort of get its head around this international peacekeeping mm-hmm. prospect, uh, which had been elevated as part of George Bush's sort of focus on the UN and using multilateral organizations as a way to reinforce the world order um, without having to invest as much of, of our uh, military strength in doing it. But there was an enormous amount of resistance within the building and specifically within the Army to that process. So. I learned a lot from that experience about the about organizational culture and organi- and bureaucratic resistance and um, and the the challenges that you have in in helping people see self interest in change and I think you know I I. I wouldn't necessarily call myself completely successful. I learned a lot of, of lessons from the mistakes that I made along the way. And I would like to think that I then um, learned from some of them when I then moved back into state as the Undersecretary for Civilian Security. And I was both trying to be an institutional, organizational leader in a new conglomerate of very different 
um, operational capacities that didn't necessarily like or trust or even want to be associated with one another. But I also came in with a very clear substantive mission, which was to sort of round out the fight on terror by trying to use diplomatic and non-military tools to essentially contain the spread of violent extremism so that we could defeat it militarily, whereas most of our effort had really been military. And so there I tried to use some of those lessons about organizational change and mission change at state. And there I probably made a different set of mistakes. I think um, I wasn't necessarily focused as much on higher level outreach and higher level communication as I needed to be in order to have the, the work sort of stick and resource it in the way that I wanted. So I think we're always learning from our mistakes. And I think the more you, you enter sort of different variations on a theme of leadership and the more you reflect on what you did and didn't do, maybe you can narrow the scope of mistake making and expand the scope of progress making. But at the end of the day, you do have to have a clear vision. You do have to be able to, to motivate and inspire people to, to want to advance that vision. And part of that is helping link the reasons that you, you believe in that change to the, the, the more parochial and self-interested reasons that the people that you need to implement that change are. And those are probably pretty enduring lessons that I've had more or less success with over time. You are striking upon themes that we hit regularly throughout the strategic leadership course that we teach here. Uh, I'll take you back for just a moment. Do you feel that you've grown in your understanding of organizational culture? You have, you have a different viewpoint of that? You, you better understand? I do, but every culture is so distinct. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm one of the people who's had the rare pleasure of serving at mid and then senior levels at both the Defense Department and the State Department. And so those cultures and how you move those cultures, the, bureau, the bureaucratic process and the little tricks that people have, they're, they're very different. Mm -hmm. There are some similarities, but they're really very different cultures. And what's interesting between the civilian world and the military world is that how you motivate people is pretty different. And I actually found it easier to appeal to sort of higher level principles in the context of DOD than I did at state because, well, there are a bunch of reasons why, but, but I, I, different, different, very different cultures in which to learn. And so great opportunities to find new mistakes to make. <laughs> Can you give us an idea? What was, what was the, what was the worst day you had as a strategic leader? Well, I, I, won't, I won't get into great specifics, but I will say that there was an occasion on which I was representing a body of work um, to someone who was more senior than I, and I felt that I had not effectively communicated the conclusions in a way that he could understand were reinforcing of his mission, and I felt that I had failed my team and my process, and it really haunted me. It still mm -hmm. does. Okay, so let's uh, let's move a little happier. What was the best day you had as strategic leader? Maybe, um, maybe the symbolic representation of the White House summit on countering violent extremism, where we had the president hosting leaders of states from across the globe, including some pretty autocratic leaders that were our close buddies in the fight on the war on terror. But we also had religious leaders and civil society leaders and people who were persecuted by those same governments in some cases, for whom it was the first time they had ever um, entered into a dialogue about sort of the underlying root causes of violent extremism and how sometimes government policies can exacerbate the problem. And, and the, just the symbolism of this conference 
that the president was endorsing that was the beginning of the inculcation of this broader notion of preventing the spread of violent extremism throughout the UN system. That was sort of the microcosm of the, the tipping point from where we'd gone from arguing that there was a problem, suggesting that there were solutions, trying to build a coalition so that people could see both. And it was really represented at this co-equal motley crew of, of both, you know, interior ministers and rabble-rousers and civil society advocates in, an, in a meeting convened by the President of the United States. Right. Can you give us an idea, and you can choose what position you, you reference when you talk about this, can, can you tell us what your typical week uh, looks like? The, what's the experience of managing your time, whether that was when you were at state or in your current position now, which one you feel would be most useful for uh, kind of the management of time and experience? So I think the the piece that I brought to state that um, many who were foreign service officers and civil service officers were shocked by initially um, was that whenever someone would come to me asking me to do something, I would ask them to explain to me why that was my highest and best use. And that is not a question that people ask in government a lot because right. we're so inbox driven and we're so we're staffed so much. But this notion of of you know you look at me and you tell me why am I uniquely positioned to move the needle on this and tell me why this deserves my time. But then alongside of that, I had to articulate what my what my my enduring and 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 non-negotiable touch points were. So I had a variety of things that I did on a regular basis, whether they were, you know, meetings with the immediate team of of senior staff, whether they were open meetings that I had with State Department personnel to sort of get bottom-up feedback from people. There were just a series of things that I would do on a recurring basis that I felt were important anecdotes to that were the important baseline of my feedback about how I was leading and where there were new opportunities to lead. Um, but if you ask me how I spend my time now, it's looking for ways to be useful in a post-government world in which I have opportunities to contribute and I have time to contribute, but I don't have a formal role that makes that easy. Mm -hmm. So anybody who has suggestions, most welcome to contact me. Was that was that your natural tendency, those those habits you brought to state, or was that something that you were influenced by your time at defense, or where did that come from to begin with? I think it came, frankly, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I had worked on the Obama campaign. I was one of his first security advisors back in 07, 08. And, um, and I wasn't able, for a variety of reasons, having to do with my family life to, to serve until um, my older three were seniors. So I came in at the tail end of the administration, and I had a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. I'm not a lifer, right? right? I came to accomplish certain things, and I had a finite amount of time, and that really forced me to focus and ask the team to focus. But I'm really pleased to say that I think all of those who were exposed to that way of thinking have adopted that into their own way of thinking about their limited time on this planet to make a difference. So that, that's got to be a, a frustrating aspect in the political realm of, I mean, you've obviously developed tools to, to deal with it, but that idea that you're under the gun, you're under a time, <clears throat> you're under the clock to, to get something accomplished. I mean, it's similar in many ways to military commands and that you've only got a certain amount of time with a unit before you, you move on. Uh, did you find that you, you find yourself very frustrated trying to accomplish those tasks in a certain period or... Well, it, it certainly can be frustrating, and, and I'll add another layer to that in a moment, but I think one of the, 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 the realities that you have to 
understand when you come into government is that most of the permanent government, the civil service, the foreign service, are working on a very different time frame. And you, and in one's urgency to, in the urgency that one brings to a mission in government, it works better in some environments than others. In a more top-down hierarchical place like the Department of Defense, you have a greater likelihood of success. Mm-hmm. If you are if you are trying to drive from the top, but in the State Department, which is which is so atomized and doesn't have doctrine and doesn't have sort of the clear chains of command that are actually followed in practice, it's it's a much it's a much murkier environment within which to rush. It everything just takes time and consultative, and you have to have people on board. And so I think I think state it can be particularly challenging in that respect. And of course. One of the realities of our political system is that you can work really hard in a considered way to lay a groundwork for something, which is what I believe we did over the last three years that I was serving in government. But then depending on the will of the American people, you may find that there's a change in administration. And instead of thinking that you've built a very solid foundation for rapid implementation in the future, you find that the winds have changed and it's no longer necessarily the investment that it might have been. It's just the way it rolls in the United States of America. So in addition to what you've already described in some of your personal habits, or your professional habits, I should say, in dealing with the folks at state, are there any other habits that you find that are necessary for other senior strategic leaders to cultivate? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I respect so much about the way the military seeks to develop leaders is, you know, the book lists. Everybody's got their book list. And and I think that's great. Um, I myself find the most rewarding mode of learning to be to speak to people who have had experiences that were not necessarily the same as my own, but from which I can learn. Because the problem with books is that that particularly biography, but even, even particularly memoir, but even biography, really suffers from that interrogatory mm-hmm. piece, right? I always want to know, you know, a deeper why or a different why or, a, you know, what was your, what was going on in your family life at that time? Or was your parent dying at that time? Or were you really angry? Had you not had enough sleep? You know, did you have a bad conversation with someone? Were you, was your boss interfering in some way? I always, there, you know, the great man theory of leadership involves a degree of peeling away the onion that is difficult to do when you're just interacting with the text. Mm-hmm. So I find I really learn when I can when I can have a chance to have an intimate discussion with someone, even if they've been in a very different field and faced a seemingly different challenge. I think that's where I learn most about what to do and not do as a leader. Those uh, All those external factors you covered there that are, that are most interesting and contribute to the story kind of lead to the next thought of, we have we constantly have leaders coming through here that talk about the idea that you have to find balance in your life, um, and more often than not, their first answer is that, that yeah they give themselves a D in terms of finding balance in their life, but they made it this far. What, what are your thoughts on balance as, as you've moved through these different positions and these very different cultures? Have you been able to do that? You mentioned earlier not being able to start a position until your your children were more senior. Obviously, that's a measure of balance in a sense. Yeah, I think I'm working on meta balance, right? <laughs> I don't. I I'm a pretty intense person, and I'm not sure that I have always found balance in my work, but what I have sought to do over my lifetime is balance. So my early career, my first dozen years were in Washington and it was all work all the time. And my friends remember my work and I was at work all the time and I didn't even notice because I loved it. Um, But then I took 20 years off essentially. And I raised a family of four kids 
and I built a new career in academia, and I did a lot of work with the military during that time, but it was project-based work, and I made that work with my family priorities at that time and my geographic happenstance at that time. But when I left, when my, my older three were, were graduating high school and went back in to work in the State Department, I had no balance again. So um, part of the question is really, um, you know, if, if your model is you go in, you spend it all, you come out, you regroup. I'm in a regrouping phase right now. But I think it's a harder question for those for whom their whole career is intense. And there I think that's a different type of balance. And the only thing I can recommend to anyone who might be listening is yoga. <laughs> okay. Breathe. Yeah, very good. For those that aren't fortunate enough to, uh, to be here at the Strategy Conference, what sort of message would you like to send to them as to, in terms of what, uh, what you're talking about here today and what the big theme is to take away from it? I think the question being posed here is a really important and enduring question. And in some ways, it's what the multi-domain battle concept that the Army is playing with is trying to get its arms around, which is what does a war look like in the future when we know that technology is coming in a vastly disruptive mode and has real implications for what we've traditionally thought about military leadership? But also the continuum or the distinctions between war and peace are being eroded such that the way we used to imagine the military gets its turn when it's war and then they go and then it goes back to you know, the, the civilian peacetime role, um, that has also changed. So A, what's the, how is war changing? And then B, what does that mean for the kinds of, of skills and awarenesses and characteristics that, that both military and civilian leaders will need in the future. And it's right now really a question more than it is a message. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. We know you've got a very busy schedule. In spite of you searching for, for purposeful time to, to be spent out there, uh, we thank you for coming here for the conference. We thank you for sitting down with us for the podcast. And it's we wish you all pleasure. the best. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.